Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Welcome to the Daily Doctor's Kitchen with me, your host, Dr. Rupi. I'm a medical doctor, cookbook author, podcaster, and studying for a master's in nutritional medicine. The Daily Doctor's Kitchen is a series of bite-sized nuggets of information all to do with food, nutrition, healthy living to allow you to live your best life. Remember, you can listen to full-length episodes of the Doctor's Kitchen podcast wherever you listen to pods. And my latest cookbook is 321. Three portions of fruit and vegetables per person, two servings per recipe, and all using one pan. Curries, stews, tray bakes, you name it, it's in the cookbook. Wiggling toes doesn't mean you're going to be walking again. You know, a lot of people in wheelchairs, and I know a lot of people in wheelchairs now, you know, can stand up and can even take a few steps, but they need the wheelchair to get around. So it wasn't like I was out of the woods, but there was some hope. Um, and actually, when I moved to the RUH in Bath, I met a physio who features quite heavily in my book called Pete, who was the head neurophysio there, crazy looking little Italian guy. And I'd heard rumours of Pete in the intensive care unit, you know, how much of a legend he was and how experienced he was. And I had this image in my mind of what Pete would look like, you know. And then he came around the corner and I, I nearly asked him, you know, he had like full Puma tracksuit on. He was like nearly 60. Um, I nearly asked him like, hi, mate, do you know where Pete is? I need to speak. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, that's me. And he ended up being the next person after the paramedics after neil brewer who who um, was the surgeon pete was the next the next key in the cog that that really put pushed me forward and he did that um not just through his technical ability you know some of the best physios i've worked with i've been lucky to work with some great physios in hospital and since i've left hospital they just have a knack for it. And I think with neuro, it's kind of, you know, you've got to be a bit of a Jedi to be a really good neurophysio. They have a feel for it because obviously your neurology, neurology is very different. You know, a really good musculoskeletal physio, there's a pro, they're very knowledgeable. There's a process they go through. Um, but it, with neuro and long-term rehab and life-changing injuries, a lot of it's mental um, and they almost have to be psychologists at the same time. Um, and Pete said to me straight away, he said, we'll get you back on your feet. 
And he since admitted to me that he didn't actually believe that. <laughs> but wow. Judge, judging by my scan results, but he knew that if I didn't believe it, then it would never happen. And up until that point, I'd been told I was never going to walk again. So that mindset change made a big difference. And I think if he was towing the party line, he probably shouldn't have said that to me. But, you know, he'd been around the block enough times to to know that the importance of having my head in the right place. And then we he, he used to be in the army and we sort of kicked off with, he knew that I just wanted to get going. I think it was in, in me as like... Um, as a sports person that I just wanted to have something to do and to feel like I was recovering and pushing myself. So he'd like leave things in the room for me, like broom handles and be like, do 400 reps of that. And he knew that I'd try and do 500 and he was very good at managing me emotionally. So the next four weeks, he actually got me from um, flat on my back with a wiggling foot to the day before I went to Salisbury Spinal Unit, they managed to stand me up, which... I was probably too early to stand me up. You know, you have these things called tilt tables and sorting out your blood pressure and so you don't pass out and all of these sorts of things. But he knew that the way the protocols were, that if I'd gone to Salisbury, having not stood up yet after six weeks, I would have gone gone on their um, sort of pathway to leaving hospital in a wheelchair. So they would have just got me better at, you know, managing myself and being independent. But he knew that if I'd stood up once before I went and that was in my notes, then they they were obliged to get me on the stand back to standing protocol. So that was the other way he really helped me out. And then I ended up going to, to Salisbury Spinal Unit. And I would say throughout this whole process, um, as I've said, like the NHS is incredible. It saved my life. All of these amazing people who who are still friends of mine, some I still work with. But resources are obviously really tight and especially in long-term rehab. So they can, if I was in a private clinic in America or whatever, then it would have been sort of seven or eight hours of input a day, you know, but it was three or four hours of input a week, you know, because that's all that could be supplied. But Pete was willing to, I he realised I had a room full of rugby players or my wife or family every day and he would train them to do bits of rehab with me so I was getting that extra input which made a huge difference to my recovery in in the long run and and um which isn't necessarily by the book you know having people who aren't professionals touching you when you you know you've just had a spinal cord injury but he knew that that was the only way he saw a glimpse a chance um and he was willing to bend the rules I think to to help me realise that. And I went off, and then I went to Salisbury Spinal Unit, met another amazing physio called Kim, and all of a sudden was around a lot of other people with spinal cord injuries. Because up to that point, I'd kind of been in a side room on a neuro ward, um, and I'd felt a bit isolated, or it was still just a bit, of, I was in a bubble. But then I was surrounded, all of a sudden I was surrounded by 40 other people with spinal cord injuries. And I realised two things straight away. First one was, it wasn't just full of like extreme sports athletes and bullfighters and the kind of people you'd expect to get spinal cord injuries. It was a complete cross section of society, which at first I was quite disappointed about. So I was looking forward to meeting a load of X Games athletes. But um, you realise that these things just happen. You know, a lot of them were medical complications or tumours or you know very benign ways to get spinal cord injury. But also, you know, there was um, all ages men, women all religions, races, it didn't matter. And and that made me realise that these 
spinal cord injuries can happen to anyone and there's no fault involved. There was a lot of good people in there that bad, bad things had happened to. So that helped me start removing some of the blame from myself. And I think to that point, I was carrying a bit of blame. I felt guilty for making a mistake like that. But then spending time with other people and hearing how they had had their accidents, you know, became very good friends with a guy called Rick who just picked up his toddler and a disc in the bottom of his back blew out and now he's in a wheelchair, you know, for the rest of his life. You know, that simple, you know, and um, that helped me start removing some of the blame. And then the next big realisation was even though I was in a bad place, you know, I wasn't walking by that point, you know, I'd stood once, but that didn't mean I was out of a wheelchair. I was improving, you know, I was moving, I, I was getting that little bit of movement every day, not every day, but um, most days I was moving in the right direction. And also I was a lot better off than some other people, you know, they were on, had permanent track, trackies in, you know, couldn't breathe for themselves. Um, and I started feeling, you know, lucky about my situation. I started being fortunate about the position I was in rather than feeling unlucky about the position I was in. You know, I started feeling grateful that I wasn't still on the bottom of that at the swimming pool you know I could have quite easily died I started feeling grateful that my dad was there to immobilize me after knowing to hold me still after the accident because a lot of the damage caused in spinal injury is actually done in the handling after the accident you know if it was just my friends they probably would have just dragged me out of the water and rightfully so you wouldn't expect them to do anything else but it could have been a different story and the fact that I was improving um, I realized you know you've got no you've got no right to complain to feel sorry for yourself anymore, look around you, you're really lucky to be in the position you are and, and have some hope to to improve for the future. And and that mindset change, um, feeling lucky about my situation rather than unlucky about it, my body started reacting and I just kicked on massively. And after six weeks in the spinal unit, so three and a half months in total from the accident, I left in a wheelchair, but I had taken my first few steps by that point um, using um foot splints and and parallel bars and stuff but I was on the roads to being a to being a walker again and and that was something that just three and a half months previously was I'd been told was was never going to be a possibility so um yeah it was it it was starting to turn from a horror story into one of hope and, and positivity um and after another four or five months of rehab I decided I wanted to do something to to raise money for the charities that supported me since I'd left, but also give myself a goal and a target. You know, we spoke about shoulder injuries before with rugby and you'd go, right, you'd lit, you could go in the diary, right, shoulder reconstruction, nine months, that's how long rehab takes, that's the game, you know, so I'm going to aim for that. And you had something to aim for. But for this, it was just endless. It was like, we don't know how far you're going to get. You're going to be rehabbing for the rest of your life. Good luck. So I needed to put a challenge in place for myself. So I told Pete, um, physio, that I wanted to climb Snowden uh, on the year mark. And he thought I meant two-year mark because I was still using a wheelchair after nine months. Um, so I had three months. I said, no, on the one-year mark, set myself the challenge. And and he thought I was mad. But I said, Look, I'm going to go for it. If you want to join me, you can. So obviously they had no choice but to come with me. And I opened it up to anyone so, else. So at, at nine months, you were in a wheelchair. And how many steps were you taking at this point? Um, I was walking in rehab. So a lot like with uh, with poles or in parallel bars. Oh, okay. So okay. I probably, so I was using a wheelchair day to day to get around. Um, but I probably walked up to sort of, I don't know, uh, a few hundred meters um, in one wow. go. 
I hope you enjoyed today's Daily Doctor's Kitchen. The Doctor's Kitchen podcast is where I discuss multiple topics around nutrition, medicine, and well-being with experts and researchers from around the globe. So do go check it out. And my latest cookbook is 321. Three portions of fruit and veg per person, two servings per recipe, and all using one pan. Find me on social media at doctors underscore kitchen and sign up for recipes every week at thedoctorskitchen.com. I'm Dr. Rupi. Have a beautiful day. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.